Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder joining us, you know, from Startup Nation. You know, we're gonna be talking about his amazing journey. You know, he's right now building a rocket ship that uh, we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna be talking about this in detail, especially because he's tackling a industry that has been completely neglected. Neglected. Uh, he has uh, multiple exits. You know, he's uh, taken. Uh, several of his companies, actually, that he co-founded, you know, went public. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking a lot about time to market, you know, perspectives, uh, especially when you're thinking about utilizing the technology that you have available to you for the environment that maybe, you know, you have around you. Also going about integrations, you know, with, uh, with your business, as well as, you know, with, uh, you know, people, why people are so important, you know, to organizations and, and some of the lessons around that. So again, Brace yourself for an episode that is going to be incredibly inspiring with our guest today, Shay David. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Fantastic to be here. So, Shay, so give us a walk through memory lane. Born and raised in Israel, how was life growing up? Life growing up was uh, interesting, especially now, you know, we're being interviewed while uh, Israel is fighting a war. I was born in 1973, a very tumultuous time in Israeli military history. So uh, growing up in Israel was actually surprisingly serene. You know, a lot of time spent outside, a lot of time spent with our dog, roaming around uh, Israel in action. And in actuality, I think it's much more serene and calm than you'd suggest uh, from the news. So how would you say that he shaped you up to the, f the fact that your dad, you know, was working for the Israeli government? You know, and you guys... You know, we're, uh, you know, in and out of the U.S. as well. I'm sure that that shaped a little bit to the worldview that you had. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, you know, the old joke is that Israelis woke up and realized that there's nothing much around other than sand. So the only thing that they could do is high tech and silicon or rely on human ingenuity. So I think a lot of the interest growing up was uh, self-sufficiency and the capability of being able to kind of make ourselves. Um, and as a kid, I actually uh, got to travel to Silicon Valley when I was in elementary school and then later again in high school. So I always had that contrast between life in Israel as a small country and life in Silicon Valley where technology was happening. And that definitely helped me shape my own technology vision, understanding how technology could be a force for good or a force for evil and being able to bring a lot of that technology back to Israel. How did you get into computers, by the way? Uh, it's a good story. I think that uh, I went to elementary school and then I went to high school in Palo Alto. So first in the 80s. And uh, I just remember that, uh, you know, to get an hour of a computer before people, before personal computers were actually personal, you had to book an hour at the library. So my first experience with a personal computer was with a TI-99, one hour a week at the Palo Alto Public Library. Uh, but the computers didn't have a, any recording device. So you had to program your program, type it in, debug it, run it, all within the course of an hour. So that taught you a lesson about efficiency and about writing code without too many bugs. Otherwise, you wouldn't get to run anything. And that was a very strong memory that I took away from that uh, year in Palo Alto. So you studied uh, ultimately computer science in Tel Aviv. 
But one thing that is really remarkable to me is that you've done quite a tour when it comes to uh, American universities. You know, you ended up doing your master's in New York University. You also did a PhD in Cornell. Then you did a postdoc at Yale University. And what's going on with all these different universities and all these, you know, different uh, degrees? I tried to stay a student as long as I could. And every time they kicked me out, I had to go to another school. No, I'm just kidding. But I really appreciated uh, American academia. And I always was hungry for more knowledge and, and, and mostly being surrounded with smart people. So while starting companies and, and being a serial entrepreneur, there was always kind of a scholar in me. And I truly did try to stay a student for as long as I could and, and keep diving into knowledge. My academic area of expertise is open information systems. I did my PhD at Cornell on open and collaborative information systems, understanding things like Wikipedia uh, and open source software, but there's also a lot of examples from military history, from open source biology, really understanding how large groups of people come together to build large-scale information systems. And uh, later I moved to my postdoc at Yale, where I studied access to knowledge and how all that knowledge is being put to good use with all its implication for law and policy, uh, etc. So that was always in the background of, of me being an active entrepreneur and building technology, there was always a side of me that really wanted to understand the impact of technology and kind of this very complex relationship between technology and society. Well, curiosity is definitely a pattern that you see on on some of those like super successful founders too. It's like they are eager to learn, to find, you know, things, to find new things. And I mean, in your case, that's ultimately what happened, you know, with your first venture, Mind Echo. So how did you get into the whole venture world? You know, what was what was that? Uh, what did that look like for you? Uh, so that was my first startup. I was the first a team lead, and then I was um, on the business side. And that was a company that developed collaborative filtering and recommendation systems. Um, and within that company, I was in charge of of developing some of the applications, and then helping strike some of the deals. And that was I joked that that was my business school. I never went to business school, but in that company, I learned the most important lesson. In technology businesses, I think, which is time to market. The technology that that company MindDeco developed was technology that was able to recommend individual media tracks to people. Today, we kind of take that for granted because we have that on iTunes and Netflix and whatnot. But we're talking 25 years ago, that wasn't taken for granted at all. The challenge that the company had was that there was no market for selling individual media tracks. So the value of recommending media to people was quite low and it was one of those companies where um, technology is looking for an application it actually did never found kind of a great outcome for that application so that to me that is a lesson that stayed with me for the rest of my career which is you need to have great technology as a, as a required condition but it's not always sufficient because timing to market is absolutely essential when commercializing technology like that especially on the front end and the, on the bleeding edge of technology development well, as the saying goes too, you know, you either succeed or you learn. So I guess, uh, you know, in exactly. this case, it was, I mean, you guys ended up doing a transaction. You know, you guys ended up uh, selling the IP. So I think that there's two things there that perhaps you learned. One was the visibility into the full cycle of building a business, you know, from start to finish line. And then number two is not achieving perhaps, you know, like that billion dollar, you know, outcome that you had hoped for. What was, you know, also the lesson that you took away from dealing with perhaps not the outcome that you had hoped for? I think, uh, you know, there's always these stories about the entrepreneurs kind of getting up and brushing the dust and moving on. Uh, the 
the metaphor that stuck in my mind always is that the technology ecosystem is kind of like the coral reef. Smaller fish get eaten by bigger fish and, and debris falls to the ground, but the ecosystem itself remains very lively. And I think that when you have a, a kind of an experience like that, where you're not getting the tremendous outcome, you're getting some outcome, but you meet a lot of people along the way, you learn important skills, you learn what works, what doesn't work. That's kind of ecosystem material to build your next startup. And for me, that was definitely kind of defining lessons saying, okay, I understand how the world works a little better than I did a few years ago. And let me go at it again. So let's talk about going at it again, because that was Destinator Technologies, you know, the next thing, idea right. or venture that came knocking. So how was that transition like, you know, for you? So Destinator was a very different business. It was a technology business. And Destinator, which I started together with my good friend, uh, Ron, was in the business of GPS navigation. The limiting factor at the time was that um, there wasn't a lot of communication that was able to get to the device. This was very early days of smart devices, not even smartphones. We're talking about the, you know, the early versions of Palm Pilots and Compact iPads. There was no 4G, 3G, 2G, 1G, no communication to the device. So everything needed to be synchronized offline. And we realized that if you want to get GPS navigation in the physical hands of people or in cars, that you had to have a lot of data on the device. But the devices have very limited memory. We're talking 64 megs, not 64 gigs. And um, the limiting factor was compression. So Destinator developed a proprietary compression technology. We call it the MP3 of navigation, because just like MP3, it was lossy compression. But it was uh, specifically designed for these types of navigation application. It was good for fleet tracking, it was good for personal navigation, in-car navigation. And what we were able to do based on that technology is really unlock kind of the environmental potential of all these devices that we were buying. So people who would buy a Palm Pilot and wanted to know what other things they could do with it. There wasn't a lot that you could do with a Palm Pilot other than, say, taking notes. By being able to use our compression, you can turn a Palm Pilot into a navigation device. That had a tremendous effect because now you could get navigation for probably less than half the cost that it would cost you to buy a dedicated Garmin device or, or a dedicated hardware for that because you could reuse that CPU for something good. So that was a, a very important lesson for me in the sense that you have to understand the technological environment and what was going on. We knew that these devices are becoming ubiquitous. We knew that in order to use them for other applications, you needed the data, and we understood that in order to get the data, you need compression. So by focusing on compression, all of a sudden, a whole world of applications unlocked, and, and that was the driver for the success of, of Destinator. And obviously, I mean, what a what a remarkable journey! Because also, you guys ended up taking the company public, you know, and it reached a valuation, you know, of half a billion bucks. So uh, pretty remarkable. So I guess, how was that experience too of taking a company public? I'm sure that was probably quite the experience. Yeah, I think today you'd call that a SPAC deal. The company went public into into a into a shell and was merged with a company that had complementary technology and that owned a lot of the private companies. So it was a complex financial transaction, but the business logic was very sound and the technology logic was very sound because when those two companies worked together, there was fleet tracking and onboard navigation. So you can have an end-to-end solution that was very valuable for a large companies. So we ended up doing this with Lockheed Martin and with Acer and with HP and the capability to basically bring that technology in an end-to-end 
integrated enterprise solution was very valuable and the, the company grew its revenue very rapidly um, and was very successful in, in doing that. So obviously, as the saying goes, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So it didn't take long for you to uh, to pull the trigger once again. You know, in this case, obviously, you know, that transition was maybe easier because now, you know, you were going from a successful, very successful company that uh, that you had, you know, helped to, to be a co-founder there ultimately to starting a new one. I'm sure that that next, you know, like turning the page and going to the next chapter was a little bit smoother than before. You know, what, what would you say changed and why did you decide it was the right time to do so at that point? So I, I took a couple of years uh, to finish my PhD and rest a little bit and kind of see what's the next big trend. And what I saw together again, uh, I continued with my very good friend, Ron, and two other amazing entrepreneurs, Ron and Michal. Uh, and what the four of us, when we got together, saw that the, the world was changing again. If uh, initially, when we started Destinator, we saw that there would be some ubiquity of devices, uh, now we understood that the next thing that was happening was really the media revolution. The iPhone had just come out, and all of a sudden, a billion people had the means of production for video in their pockets. A billion mobile cameras, mobile video devices, a lot of screens, multi-billion uh, devices, kind of endpoints that could consume video, and it became apparent to us that there's going to be this amazing opportunity for being able to help control this video revolution. And there weren't really good systems there. I don't know if you remember the first days of video on the web. It was stuttering. And if you shot something on one device, it didn't work on another device. And there would be constant buffering. And it wasn't very secure at all. And in fact, a lot of the stack, which for the regular text-based internet was fairly developed at that point, by being able to publish and measure and monetize, all of a sudden, all of that broke with video. How do you publish video? How do you monetize video? How do you measure the success of video? There was an opportunity to rebuild the video stack, and we understood that uh, fairly on. And we started a company, we called it Cultura, uh, which were the words that kind of resonated with culture because we understood that the next iteration of culture was gonna be in video. Humans are multimedia creatures, and if a picture is worth a thousand words and uh, 24 frames per second, you do the math, it became apparent that there's going to be a huge opportunity in video. Uh, and that was kind of our, our logic for starting the company. But we didn't really know which part of the stack we were going to solve. We thought that maybe the original idea was that we're going to allow people to post funny videos for competitions and maybe for collaboration. And we had an iteration of the idea where we thought that this was going to be kind of the Wikipedia for video where a lot of people are going to contribute small pieces of content for creating larger pieces of content. And it took a few iterations for us to understand that what really the world needed was a simple to use platform as a service video stack that could be plugged into the rest of the ecosystem and that could help organizations really utilize the power of video for everything they do for inside use cases, for outside use cases, for enterprise learning and training and marketing, for entertainment use cases, for uh, education purposes. Essentially, we learned that video was an essential tool that uh, intervened in, in everything people did from the way they meet, the way they study, the way they create, the way they procreate, uh, et cetera. And it was pretty apparent to us that anybody who was gonna own that stock is gonna become a very valuable company. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, 
you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So obviously the company became very valuable, Cultura. You know, again, you guys ended up uh, taking the company public, you know, peak valuation of 1.8 billion. Now, one thing that is very interesting on this journey is that at one point, you guys decide to bring senior talented management no, to, to really take the company to a new height. At what point do you realize that? And what's that, what, what is that thought process? Because, I mean, ultimately, as founders, it's hard to let go of the reins you know, of your baby and you know, hand them over to someone else. So, so how was that like for you guys? Uh, I think for us, it was about understanding that while you know, many entrepreneurs, myself included, like to think of themselves most of the days as the smartest people in the room. Actually, there are people that could probably do the job better than, than you can, especially if you come as an entrepreneur. And sometimes the, the risk of that is that you might be jumping from industry to industry. There are dedicated professionals that are spending their entire careers within specific industries. And that once that creative spark is there, a lot of the growth of businesses is about the day-to-day, -day, providing value to customers day in and day out, and net promoter scores, and being able to do the integrations with the rest of the ecosystem. And for us, it was clear that if we really wanted to make an impact in this market, if we want to build and sustain a multi-billion dollar business that would have thousands of customers and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, then we need to bring in a set of professionals that can help build that company, from operations to finance to general management of the company's divisions. And we started a very orderly process of being able to find that talent and bring that talent. And sometimes that talent came from competition. Sometimes it came from customers that saw the technology and said, oh, if you can provide that value for me, you can probably provide it to others. And I know how I can do that, and et cetera, et cetera. So in 2020, obviously, you realize that uh, now the company is in good shape, you know, uh, being led by great people. And obviously that frees up time. But as a founder, when time is uh, available, you get the time to also dream. Now, in your case, when, 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 when that moment came, you know, and the, the moment to dream came about, what you realized was that people were ultimately the most important, you know, asset, you know, within organizations and that HR had been neglected. And that ultimately led you to start retrain.ai. So 
what are you guys ultimately doing at retrain.ai and what's the business model and how do you guys make money there? So Retrain AI is a new company, um, new team, new investors, even though some of the investors from Cultura followed me because uh, they wanted another run uh, together with me. So two amazing co-founders, Avi and Isabel. Um, Avi came from the Israeli military many years, uh, building very large-scale state-case systems as the CIO, CTO for Israeli military intelligence, and Isabel coming from HR tech with many years of experience in both building HR technology as well as financial and operational roles uh, with other um, individuals within the Israeli tech ecosystem. And uh, together, the three of us had this vision that the next big revolution that was happening, and again, I'm trying to implement my lessons about really understanding the bigger shifts that are happening in the technology landscape. So we talked about mobility and we talked about video, and the next big evolution was AI. Every CEO in the world wakes up today thinking, how is AI going to disrupt my business? For many of them, the, the solution to that equation is, let me see how I can implement AI in my business. But what many CEOs are beginning to realize is that the most neglected asset is their people. So we came to this area with a different angle saying, could we use AI to empower people? Most AI companies' business plan could be translated to how many jobs are you going to take away? It doesn't matter whether you have a self-flying drone or an automated ordering system at an airport cafe, right? Eventually, most AI takes people's jobs away. We wanted to reverse that equation. We said, what if we use AI not to take away jobs, but to create jobs, to help organizations hire faster, retain longer, develop their talent more intelligently? And what we developed is we developed an HR co-pilot. It's a natural language processing-based system based on billions of data points that we train to really understand the labor market in the language of skills. And it helps HR professionals and it helps hiring managers and it helps CEOs and it helps boards really take smart decisions in this cycle from hire to retire. Starting from pre-hire, answering questions like, who are the best candidates in my candidate pipeline that I should hire? Where can I find more candidates like that? Then moving on to onboarding and talent management, like, which career path that that individual has and how could we put an individual in a career path that they're doing their maximum, enjoying themselves while contributing. Then moving on to strategic workforce planning questions like what are the next things we should be hired for? How do we stand against industry in terms of developing the skills that we need for the workforce of tomorrow for kind of the future of work? So that was the vision of the company. We've been building it for the last few years. Uh, some very large companies around the world are using it to help them take HR decisions day to day. And the outcome of that is that we have an AI that helps create jobs rather than taking jobs away, that helps people find meaningful employment, and that helps really fight the skills gap, which is probably one of the largest problems affecting the world right now. If you read the headlines in, say, the New York Times economic sections, you would think that AI is going to take everybody's jobs. The data shows otherwise. The data shows that the biggest problem the market has right now is not lack of jobs. It's lack of skilled labor that could do those jobs. It's people that can work with 21st century skills, with the machines, in order to help organizations do their maximum. And that's exactly what we're focusing on. Using AI in order to help find the best people, keep them for longer, train them, and develop them more intelligently so that both the individual and the organization wins by being able to focus on those 21st century skills. Now, in this case, you guys have also raised some money, as you were alluding to it uh, earlier. How much capital have you guys raised to date? 
So the company had uh, announced uh, $34 million uh, of funding, led most recently by Radical Ventures, Corpeg Ventures, and before that uh, with uh, Tech Aviv, Hetz, and Point406, so really tremendous investors. Uh, very happy to have those guys on board. We tried to have every board meeting actually be a whiteboard meeting, and we're very lucky to have uh, very smart money around the tip. What do you mean with whiteboard meeting? Uh, I think that you know one of the things that um, you want to surround yourself with good people. That's true for the people that you hire, but it's also very important on the investors. So you want the board meetings to really think strategically. And I've seen too many boards from companies, say, I invest in or boards I participated in where everybody's just focused on the numbers of the last quarter. But in some sense, the numbers of the last quarter are almost not interesting because who guarantees to you that the next quarter is going to be good? It's going to be good only if you understand the bigger market trends. And that's what I mean by whiteboard meetings, by being really able to understand how do you play to your strengths? How is the technology that we're developing going to make a lot of money by being able mostly to provide a lot of value? What are the big industry juggernauts doing? Why wouldn't they squash us and develop it internally? Who's going to buy this business eventually? Or is it going to be big enough to develop its own financial metrics so they could go public? That's what I mean by whiteboard. You need to have a game plan and you need to understand that you know we're not building a charity, we're building a business. Who's going to buy our technology? Who's going to license our technology? What's a strategic differentiator? And how does this all play out uh, in the face of stiff competition in most markets? So obviously when you raise money from, from sophisticated players, you know, you need a vision and you need a vision not only for them, but then also for employees and then also for customers. So talking about vision here, if you were to, let's say, go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of retrain.ai is fully realized, what does that world look like? So I think that we're, I actually brought my future work t-shirt for the podcast. Uh, so in our vision for the future work, it's a world where people are focused on skills. And when I talk about skills, I talk about skills with capitalists, which is people or, or employees in this case are participatory in their career development. They understand that every job that they do is a learning opportunity and they own their skills wallet or skills passport. And at every given point in time, they understand that they need to learn because people entering the workforce today are probably going to have 10 to 15 different jobs, potentially completely shifting careers. At the turn of the, uh, of the 20th century, almost 50% of the U.S. population worked in agriculture. Today, less than 3% of them work in agriculture. That doesn't mean that 47% of the people became unemployed. It means that 47% of the people are working in professions that we didn't know existed. The old joke about the Jewish grandmothers that wants her grandkids, one of them to be a lawyer and the other one to be a doctor, right? Very few Jewish grandmothers that I know wanted their um, grandkids to become full-stack developers, even though full-stack developers in the reality of 2023 is probably one of the best-paying jobs. So in our vision, the world that we see for the future work is a world that is focused on skills and gives individuals the capacity for lifelong learning to continue in developing their skills and gives organizations the capacity to take decisions from hire to retire around skills so that they can find the talent that they need, develop the skills that they need, and make individuals more engaged and more productive at the same time. And I think we're getting pretty close to that vision using systems like ours and, and a host of other startups that are developing kind of that future work. 
and why things that happened in the last few years, and especially kind of during COVID and after COVID, is this idea that the future work is here. McKinsey talked about a 15-year horizon for that, and COVID actually compressed that with a lot of new technologies coming in, the AI revolution, remote work, flexible work, dramatic shifts in the uh, labor market, which are being accelerated. So I think we're getting very close to that vision every day. Now, imagine if you were uh, now to go into a time machine and let's say, you know, you're able to go back in time, you know, maybe to that moment where you were about to think about starting Mind Echo and you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Shea and, and give that younger Shea one piece of advice for launching the business. You know, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say um, focus on customer value right? Understand who your customer is, how do you provide value to them, and how does that value translate into your main business driver? Who's going to pay for what? And, you know, that could all, all those more complicated questions could be translated into two simple questions to ask that uh, future self in an interaction with the customer, which is ask your would-be customer the following, which is, what could you do with my product that you couldn't do without it? And what could you do with my products that you couldn't do with the competition? And if you do not have a very clear answer to both of those questions, don't develop the product. I wouldn't today, but I know today, I would tell my, my uh, younger shy, don't write a single line of code until you have a crystal clear answer to both of those questions. I love it. So, Shay, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? So the best way is uh, find me on uh, either LinkedIn, uh, Dr. Shai David, or uh, Retrain AI. Um, so that's www.retrain.ai or shai.david, S-H-A-Y dot D-A-V-I-D at retrain.ai. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, Shay, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.